Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. My name is Drew. I'm also one of the pastors here. It's good to see you. Let me commend you uh, for your continued flexibility as we keep trying to meet the challenges or whatever set of circumstances we're up against. So it's good to see so many of you and your willingness to wear masks uh, so that we can be good citizens in light of what our city leaders are asking us to do. We're going to continue to monitor things and make adjustments as we need to. Just so you know, our expectation is that we'll be in one, one service for one more week while everybody kind of finishes up their summer plans. And then in August, we'll go back to two just to make sure we have the room to spread out the way we want to. But I want to encourage all of us, let's not let's let's meet this moment uh, by pushing in, pushing into one another, pushing into the Lord, pushing into the things that matter the most because it's so easy. I don't know about you. I find myself just becoming easily weary. Uh, and and wanting to just, you know, kind of pull back. And so I just want to encourage us, let's keep uh, pushing in, keep showing up, maybe not physically, but but in whatever way we can, okay? We're going to continue a series this morning, or excuse me, we're going to begin a series this morning in the letter that John wrote to the churches, First John. And we're going to basically work our way through the entire letter from now until about Labor Day. Uh, and we're excited about that. There's going to be some really fun things that we get to talk about here. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to the first chapter. We're going to read uh, just a paragraph there in the first chapter this morning, beginning in verse 5 uh, through verse 10. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. Oh, no, it won't be. We don't have a screen this morning. Next week we will again. But it's printed for you in your worship folder, and it'll be on your screen if you're at home watching as I read. So let's all look there together at these at, at John's just past the introduction in John's gospel, which I'll get to, to the very first thing John has to say, beginning in verse 5. Let's read. Hear God's word. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness, and while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Crisis, like the one we're going through now, is an accelerator. And so we should expect that this crisis we're now four months into would begin to speed up trends that were already present in the culture as we continue to innovate and adjust to new circumstances. And one of those trends, at least one that I expect in hindsight will have been accelerated by the pandemic for however long it lasts, is the decline of what I would call cultural Christianity. Uh, Participation and... um, Membership even in religious institutions and services was, was already in sh- steep decline, uh, you know, even before all of this happened in March. Now, I don't, I don't think that means that religion is on the way out. There's no data to suggest that. Actually, it's just the opposite. But what, what it instead signals is an erosion of nominal belief. We are fast becoming a post-Christian nation, which means that much of the cultural scaffolding that once supported faith is no longer there. It's now been removed. Because, you know, not long ago, there was a, a great deal of social pressure uh, to, to keep people coming to church, at least once or twice a year, but really all of that's gone 
or it had already started to leave, and now this has just wiped it out. And so what's happening is it's becoming harder and harder to be a nominal Christian, but I want to say that's actually a good thing. Ultimately, I think. Probably not great, probably not a good thing for the church and its bottom line, probably not the best thing for the church as an institution and having payroll and having to do all those kinds of things, but for the cause of Jesus in the world, it's a good thing. Uh, and here is the uh, analogy that I want you to work with as we talk about the real thing. You see the title of the sermon series? We want to talk about the real thing, uh, the, a real, like real, genuine, authentic Christianity. Uh, but if you, think about, if you think about it this way, and this is an apt metaphor, I think, in light of what we're, we're facing with, if you, if you know what an inoculation is, an inoculation is where you go to the doctor because the flu, you know, you go get your flu shot or whatever it might be. And what it is, is it's a little strain of, of whatever disease you're trying to avoid. And they put a little strain of that disease in your body, not enough to harm you, not enough for you to actually even catch the real disease, just enough uh, so that you present a few symptoms and it actually keeps you from contracting the real thing. Now, until recently, there was a cultural Christianity that all it really served to do was to inoculate people from the real thing. That's, that's the Christianity. That's the cultural Christianity that's dying out, which means that in the days and months and years, I think, to come, the only way that Christianity is going to work moving forward is for people to catch the real infection. It's going to be harder and harder for your Christianity to work for you unless you really have been infected by the real thing. Now, that's what 1 John is all about. John wrote to a church going through a similar set of circumstances to what we're going through. Uh, the letter is dated sometime around uh, 100 AD. So if you think about it, that's pretty late in the canon. This is one of the, the last writings of the early Christian movement. Uh, you know, 100 AD, and so... You know, the movement had been going on for some time. It was well underway, but it was beginning to lose some of its momentum. So in Acts chapter 2, for example, 5,000 people hear the gospel and they, and they believe and convert it in one day. That kind of stuff's not happening so much anymore. By the time John writes, the dust has settled a bit and a lull had begun to set in. And actually, false teaching began to take root and was popping up in the church, and there was a lot of confusion. And we'll see in chapter 2, verse 19, people were actually beginning to leave the church. The church was losing members. It was losing ground in some ways. And so John wrote, in that context, to help identify and distinguish for these people between real Christianity and the fake kind. That's what this letter's all about. Chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know. That phrase comes up over and over and over again. He wants you and I, as we read and as we wrestle, to be able to diagnose and identify the difference between the real thing and something that passes off as the real thing but is actually not. And so this is his thesis, you might say. He wanted these Christians to be able to do that, to be able to diagnose the genuineness of their faith and also the faith of others. And that sort of exercise is committed elsewhere in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 13, for example, Paul wrote this, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Faith, test yourself. Peter said in his letter, make your calling and election sure. Make every effort to do so. And so the question that we have to wrestle with as we come this morning is what about you and me? Do we have the real thing? Is your faith real? Or is it just a tiny little bit of the disease that has caused a few symptoms, but it's actually keeping you 
from being infected by the real thing. Now, I'm sorry to be so direct, but you got to get used to it because that is John's way in his letter. He is not one for small talk. I mean, I, I, uh, this is another, a story for another day. I almost lost my faith in college reading First John, truly, because he's so black and white. He's so direct, and I'm typically not, not so. So long story, we'll get to that another time maybe. But this series, this series uh, from this letter is going to present to us a, a number of tests by which you can determine the reality of your spiritual condition. And I think at this point in the things we're dealing with, there's a great, great opportunity for us. Now, by the way, I think it's tremendous value in doing that uh, often, but especially now. You know, like at the gym that I belong to, um, it's like most places. A lot of people come and they kind of drift away and are gone for a long time. But if you're gone for a long time, if you've been away for a long time, when you first come back, the very first thing that they do is they put you on this machine that measures your weight and your BMI and all of these kinds of things, lean body mass and so forth, so that you can see all of the ways. You can see empirical data of all of the ways of your time not working out, how it affected you negatively. So then you can maybe like, I don't think it's to shame you into like doing things differently, but that's pretty effective a lot of times, isn't it? But really it's to kind of give you a baseline so that you can then track your progress moving forward. Well. After going on four months now of disruption, we need a similar spiritual diagnosis. That's what John's going to give us. And the very first test, the very first test of whether or not you have the real thing or just some fake knockoff is whether or not you get the gospel right. That's where John starts. Martin Luther said this. He said, the gospel is the chief article of Christian doctrine for it is the doctrine which makes true Christians indeed. If the gospel of justification by faith be once lost, then all true Christian doctrine is lost. In other words, without the gospel, there is no real Christianity. Or let me say it this way, because this is how I want to come at this. If your Christianity is religion and not gospel, then it's not the real thing. And that's a real danger. Look there, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. If what comes next is not the heart of your faith, as John lays it out here, then it's not Christianity. It is did you, did you snicker at my title this morning? Did you see the title of the sermon? It is Fake Good News. Nobody laughed. Or I can't see your faces. Maybe you are. You have to give me audible cues this morning, okay? Jonathan said, please notify your face. Smile at somebody, which I thought was hilarious because obviously you can if you have a mask on your face, so i got to see it in your eyes. All right? Because, see, we have to distinguish. There are a lot of people who are who are just religious, uh, and they mistake that religious, you know, that religion for Christianity, but it's not, it's not the same thing. And so we need to do a diagnostic. We do this every now and then, and here John puts it before us again, to really distinguish, to do everything we can this morning to distinguish between religion, which is the fake good news, and Christianity, which is the true good news. And we're going to do so by looking at it in three ways, by looking at both of them and both, where they both begin, and then the principal action of each, and the product uh, that each results in as we walk through this text. So we're really going to do our, our best to, to distinguish between these two things, okay? And the first difference that we want to look at, the first difference between religion, which is not Christianity, and Christianity, so that you can know whether you have the real thing, is that religion, at the end of the day, is all about you, and Christianity is all about God. 
true Christianity is all about God. So look at verse five. He starts with God there. It's the very first thing. Do you notice that? This is the message we've heard and proclaimed to you. What? It's a message about God. And he says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John begins with God because the Bible begins with God, because reality begins with God. What's the very first words of our scriptures? In the beginning, what? God. So the message of Christianity is fundamentally theological. It starts with God. It doesn't start with us and our needs and our desires and our problems. That's to say it's not therapeutic. I mean, I mean, this is a, the problem that I have with the anti-doctrinal approach to spiritual things that seem to have taken root in such churches. It's a strange self-righteousness that, that we seem to have about services and sermons that deal with practical matters of everyday life. As if the implication is that churches, you know, it used to be done is, is too, you know, theology is just too churchy. It's not palatable to modern tastes. But that's a problem because Jesus did not come into the world simply to start a political revolution or as a therapist to take care of all of our emotional needs. He came so that we might know God. And all of our problems are because we think wrongly about God. Every wrong in the world is because of man's self-centeredness, man's exaltation of himself above God, and we need to be cured of our self-absorption. That's what we need, and that's, that's the problem with religion, see? The, 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 first, the very first indication that your faith may be fake good news and not the real thing is if it's all about you, because religion is all about me and what I do and what I don't do, how I can become my best me. But religion is really just miracle growth for self-centeredness. All it does is increase this emphasis already in us towards ourselves. Real Christianity, in contrast, is about God. It's fundamentally God-centered because our relationship with God is the spring from which everything else in life flows. The way to joy and the way to life is to stop thinking about yourself and who you are and what you're owed and to start thinking about God and contemplate who he is and what he's owed. Or let me say it this way, and I, and I really wish we had time to get into applications here, but we need to keep moving. But the, you, the way you make progress spiritually, according to the Bible, is to think out how whatever struggles you're going through, if it's anxiety or if it's just selfishness of some kind or whatever you find yourself wrestling with, the way you make progress is you have to think how, how those struggles. You, you go back all the way to the root. You keep digging into them until you, until you get all the way to how those struggles are really just expressions of wrong beliefs about who God is. And then you have to work to change those wrong beliefs out for the right beliefs. Because, because everything starts with him. Now, John not only starts with God here, but notice, but he starts with a particular part of God's character. Later on in chapter 4, verse 18, he will say, God is love. And that is where so much of what passes for Christianity begins too, but John begins with something else. Look there at chapter one, verse five. He says, God is light. Now God is love, but he's also light. And it's with that part of his character that we have to start. And light there refers to God's purity, his goodness, his absolute moral perfection, that he cannot countenance evil. He can't coexist with it, which is a problem for us because as we'll see in just a minute, we're full of sin. And so here again, modern Christianity is all about assuring people of God's love. Now, it's not always been this way. We used to understand that before you can be assured of God's love, you have to be unsettled by his holiness. That the way to genuine spiritual life is to be rattled 
rattled by God reality. The line in Amazing Grace that no one remembers, that's probably the most important line in the whole song. Wouldn't that be a fun contest? What's the most important line in Amazing Grace that nobody remembers? But here it is. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." See, grace has to first teach your heart to fear. It has to unsettle you because the real thing always starts with God as an overwhelming existential reality and it leaves the person shaking in their boots or face down on the ground as most people who met Jesus in the Gospels were because that's the real thing. So here's my question. Have you ever had an experience of God like that? If God is light then we have to also be light in order to have fellowship with him. And that really is what we're talking about. If you look back, if you, if you have a Bible and you can peek back into verses 3 and 4 of this first chapter, we skipped it, we probably shouldn't have. But there John says that real Christianity is eternal life. It's fellowship with God and with others. It's a communal, that word is a really important word. It means a communal sharing in God's life. So it's so much more than just showing up and going to church it's, it's a depth of personal experience with God. And if God is light, then in order to have fellowship with him and even with one another, we have to be light too. Because look there in verse 5, in him is no darkness. And as if that's not enough, he tags the emphasis on the end. In him there is no darkness at all. It's, redu- it's a redundancy. No darkness, none. No darkness of any kind. There's no exception to this rule. And so you go on to verse 6 and it says, so if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, because there's no darkness in him, we lie and do not practice the truth because it is a moral impossibility. Light and darkness cannot coexist. They're mutually exclusive. And this is our spiritual dilemma. We, every one of us, we are sinners who, and here I quote John again, love the darkness rather than the light because our works are evil. And we don't want to come to the light lest we be exposed. That's what Jesus said in our reading in John this past week. And that is our spiritual condition. God is holy. And as soon as you see his holiness, you discover the self under your disguises, as A.W. Tozer said. You see yourself as you really are. As a a desperate sinner and rebel against God. And that's the second thing. That leads right into the second thing. The second difference between religion and Christianity so that you can know whether you have the real thing is what you do at that moment. What you do in that moment of self-revelation that happens when you come face-to-face with the God who is light. And in religion, the way you deal with it, in religion you deal with sin by concealing it. But in Christianity you deal with sin by confessing it. See, a religious person fundamentally believes that the relationship they have with God is based upon their performance which leads them into strategies of hiding their sin. Look at verse 8 and verse 10 here. They're both directed right at this. So John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, nobody claims anything like that today, but have you ever asked somebody about what they believe about God and heaven or about their spiritual life? And their response is, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. It's no different. Religion says you deal with the crisis of God's holiness in the way it can bear down upon your soul the reality of God's holiness and your badness by changing things and attempting to be good because you earn salvation through your moral effort. And that leads, that leads to a strategy in two ways of both boasting and hiding. When you're actually good, 
You know, when you pull it off, then you have to boast about it to conceal the imperfections and the mixed motivations. So you shine it up the way they do the apples in the grocery store to make them look their very best. And when you're bad, when you can't pull it off, then you have to hide. And you can do that in a number of ways, by pointing out how other people are worse than you or blame shifting or by outright lying to save face. But see, if you believe you're saved by works, you'll protect your moral record at all costs. And the Christianity that I've known for a lot of my life is full of people doing that, but that's not the real thing. It's the exact opposite, in fact. It's the opposite of boasting and hiding, which is what? That's what we read here. It's confessing. Look at verse 9. Jonathan quoted it about 10 times already in the sermon this morning, stealing my thunder. I was up there, like, cursing him under my breath. Because our hearts can't help but be drawn to it. It's such good news, we can't help but, but, but put it in the background where it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you see, a person who has the real thing doesn't boast or hide, they confess. Because they understand that, that Christianity is, is gospel, not religion. It's grace. And grace means that fellowship with God is something given, not earned. It's a gift, not a reward. It's based upon the merit of someone other than the one it's given to. And so Jesus Christ was the light of the world, John 8, 12. He was God in the flesh. And in his death, through his blood, there, verse 7, you can be forgiven and cleansed. Jesus Christ died upon the cross in your place as the penalty of sin. His death, he shed his blood. And in him, you can be forgiven and cleansed. That's the gospel. That's the Christian message of salvation for the world. But... It says here, you have to confess. If you boast, or if you hide, you're replacing Jesus' work with your own moral record as the basis of what you believe to be your right standing with God. But the word confess is something different. It literally, is this, it's the same word. Homo logeo is the word. You say the same thing. It means same word. You, you say the same thing about yourself that God says about you. You admit your own guilt and moral bankruptcy before God and ask him to forgive you and cleanse you. And it says there, if you will live toward him in that way, what? It says that he is faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you. He is faithful. He will do it every single time, not just when he's feeling particularly gracious. He will act according to his commitments and not his feelings towards you. But it also says he's what? He's just. And I just wrote in my notes, full stop. Because when you find that word there, it really should just grind you to a halt. He is not only faithful to forgive and to cleanse, but it says if you confess, he is just to do so. And here's what that means, that if you are a Christian, then Jesus Christ has satisfied God's justice in your place. He has paid the penalty for your sins, and God cannot demand payment from you for what has already been paid. And his justice requires that every time you confess your sins, he forgives. Because if he, if he did not, it would be an injustice for him to respond in any other way than to meet you at your place of honest confession with forgiveness and grace. Isn't that amazing? So Frederick Buechner wrote this. He said, until you confess your sins... And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope this will land upon your heart. Until you confess your sins, they are the great abyss that separates you from God. But as soon, the moment you do confess them, they become the Golden Gate Bridge. And I just love that. 
He, it's something to that effect. I, I couldn't find the quote. But, but, and the lesson is this, that for the religious person, sin is the threat to a relationship with God. But for the Christian, your sin, get this, your sin, when you confess it, it isn't a threat. It actually becomes the place where you experience the deepest intimacy and love. <laughs> if you can live honestly into the honesty of calling yourself what God already knows you to be, by the way. You have to have a spiritual journey like the spiritual journey that Buzz Lightyear went through in Toy Story 1. You didn't see that coming, did you? <laughs> Do you remember the story through most of the movie? How he is convinced that he is really a space ranger? And then he sees the commercial on the television and he looks over and he sees the Made in Taiwan sticker on his arm and he is forced to admit the truth about himself. And if you remember, it destroys him at first. He slumps and walks around and throws himself off the banister of the second floor, you know, balcony. Uh, but then the rest of the movie, he goes on a spiritual journey that leads him uh, to a, a lesson. And the lesson is that true joy is found not in being the hero that we like to think ourselves as being, but in being claimed by someone who loves us despite all of our th faults. Because really, they're too, right, the Made in Taiwan sticker on his arm is the truth. But the Andy, written on the bottom of his foot, is the greater truth. And that's the journey you got to go on. But there's a third difference. Uh, and as we come, kind of wrap up and come to a close, the third difference between religion, just religion, which, isn't, which is just fake good news and Christianity, so you can know whether you have the real thing, is what it produces. It's what comes out of it. And religion produces hype. But Christianity produces reality. Religious people say a bunch of stuff. But behind it, there's not much there. Christians walk in spiritual reality, they practice the truth, verse 6. The truth is in them, verse 8 and verse 10. Now I have to be quick here. Notice, if you read through those verses again, if we say occurs five times at the beginning of verse 6, and then again at verse 8, and then again at verse 10. And each time, there's a claim that is not substantiated by spiritual reality behind the claim. And religion, it, that's what religion is like. It's loud. It's a show. I've told you the story of my first trip to India years ago being woken up in the middle of the night uh, by the worshipers at the neighborhood temple uh, right outside of our hotel. And they were making such a ruckus at like 2 o'clock and I was jet lagged like crazy that I, I stirred and the guy I was with said, we got to go out there and, and watch. And they were just, they were banging pots and pans and doing all kinds of things and chanting and screaming and and yelling and all of this stuff. And I said, what in the world is going on? And he said, they're waking the gods up. And if you pin me down, I would have to admit, I've been to a lot of church services that felt a lot like that over the years. Because if there's no reality, all that's left is hype. But if you have the real thing, you don't just say, you actually walk in it. It's more than just what you say. And that's verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him, but also with one another. Now, an important question, what does it mean to walk in the light? That's really, that's really I think, at the end of the day, what we have to, what we have to arrive at 
from coming from this text. What does it mean to walk in the light? And we know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you have to be perfect and never make any mistakes because John's clearly said, if you say you have no sin, you lie. So what does it mean to walk in the light? And here's what I think it means. Walking in the light means an admission of sin and also the assurance of God's forgiveness and grace towards my sins. To walk in the light means to be honest about my sin and hopeful about God's grace. All at the same time, the the dynamic of those twin realities always side by side. My sin, God's grace. My sin, God's grace. That's the person who has the truth in them. They are full of spiritual reality. They practice the truth there, verse 6. Did you see that phrase? It's stated in the negative, but if you put it positively, the truth is not just the stuff you believe. If it's truth, it shows up in the way you live. It, It works its way out in your life. You make something of it. That's what that word means there. And so to walk in the light is to live from spiritual reality. And here's the reality. I am more sinful than I ever allowed myself to admit. And at the same time, because of Jesus, I'm more loved and accepted than I've ever dreamed possible. And to have those two truths side by side continue to intensify over time. Now, what kind of person would that produce? Well, it would be a person who would be profoundly honest but not glib. They would have no problem talking about their struggles Uh, There would be an uncomfortable honesty that exudes from them about things we don't usually talk about, but with no hint of self-pity. Nothing that would suggest that sin is not a big deal, none of that at all. Just a beautiful, brutal honesty. No hiding, no boasting, no posturing, no holding things close to the chest because you're safe. You're already loved for for whatever you're holding back, and so out with it. That's walking in the light. But it would also be a person that would be profoundly happy but not demanding. Now I'm trying to stay with the H here, okay, to make it memorable for you. But by happy I mean full of gratitude and wonder and surprise at all the unexpected good things of life because you know you don't deserve any of it. The opposite, of course, being that you walk around as if the world owes you something and then living in a state of perpetual disappointment when it doesn't turn out the way you think it should. I mean, what is the truth? The truth is that I'm an absolute failure and yet I'm loved by God in spite of myself and the ultimate outcomes of my life are the result of his goodness and grace to me. So I don't have to push people around. I can just receive whatever God brings as gift. That's walking in the light. That's living from a spiritual reality. But it would be a person who would be profoundly humble but not despairing. I mean, the mark of knowing that you're a big sinner, the mark it leaves on your life You can't go around treating everybody else like they're the problem and you're not. Critiquing and not instead of confessing. Critiquing, do you know this? Critiquing is a hiding strategy. The critic is hiding. They want the light to be shown on someone else so they can stay in the dark. That's not walking in the light. The humble person says, I don't have time to worry about what other people are doing. I've got enough work to do on myself. But somehow, without morbid introspection and navel-gazing, they don't take themselves too seriously either. That's walking in the light. But then I think it would be also a person who would be profoundly hopeful and yet not naive. Because the mark of knowing that you're loved, the mark it leaves on your life, is a deep confidence and joy about the future. Love hopes all things, the Bible says. And so you don't just give up easy. But it's not starry-eyed. You just live with a real sense that there's no sin or weakness in you or in others that God's love cannot overcome. That's walking in the light too. Are you walking in the light? Does the reality of God sit on your soul? Or are you just religious? Are you religious or are you alive with gospel truth? Those are hard questions. And John asks a lot of us. 
but that's because he doesn't want us to mistake an inoculation for the real disease. Is your faith the real thing? I'm praying for all of us to have the courage to seek an answer to that question, okay? And so let's take a moment and just pray here at the end of our service too. Would you pray with me as we come to a close? And I just want us to sit. I know it's time. It's 1130. You've, had mat- you've been in here with masks on for a while now. But if you would just give us one more minute for us to just sit uh, in, in that moment of confession, of, of, of realizing what the Bible says, that we are all completely naked and open to the searching eyes of God. That all of the hiding we do is for nothing. We, there's no, we can't hide. And so here we are in his presence. And I wonder if we could just live into that for just a minute. just to feel the reality of that. And if it's a terrifying thing, if it's the scariest thing you can like even imagine in your life, then the good news of the gospel is if you would turn to Jesus in faith and confess whatever it is that bubbles to the surface in that quiet moment, then God will be faithful and just to forgive you. And so Father, help us to live with that kind of brutal, brutal, beautiful honesty about the reality, the ways that we've just made a mess of things in our lives, but then that, that kind of just unflinching hope and confidence in the fact that your love can carry the day. And would it just take us places of new spiritual energy and resolve and commitment and joy to bear fruit that would glorify and honor you and that would encourage uh, one another along the same route. That's what we hope and pray. And so form all of that into uh, this song we're going to sing now as we close our service together. Thank you for this time. Help us, help us to build our life on your love. Uh, It's the only sure foundation. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, all I said there at the end of that sermon is just my vision of the kind of person that I want to be. Uh, And that I think the gospel, uh, the power of the gospel can make us. But what you have to do is you have to stand in the courage. You have to stand with courage in the moment of saying, look, Lord, there's nothing I can't hide from you. Here I am in all of my naked glory. (laughs) Right? And then to know that even in that, he turns his face towards you in love. That's the promise of this benediction. And it is the power to go and to live walking in the light as he is in the light, to have fellowship with one another. And so receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for your patience this morning. Go in his peace. If you would fellowship outside with one another, that would be great. We appreciate that.